Welcome to the very first remote How AI Built This. We have an unfortunate situation. A big part of my kind of desire to do the podcast was to meet people in industry, um, go to their office, uh, grab a coffee, shoot the shit um, in person. Uh, unfortunately, we're not allowed uh, or able to do that just now, but I was keen to keep cracking on with the show um, and keep talking to people in the world of data. So yeah, today was the first one uh, from my makeshift office. Uh, as always, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Cathcart Associates, um, the best damn tech recruitment company in the entire world. I'm slightly biased, given that I work there, uh, but even in the face of the kind of the strangest time our business has ever known, um, they've really encouraged me to keep doing the podcast and spread them some data happiness. Um, so yeah, th- those guys are absolute legends. So thank you for them. Today, I get to speak to Craig Mackay. Um, he is the CEO and co-founder of Shark Tower, um, an AI-driven project management software data tool um, with the aim to help project teams uh, basically spot problems before they even happen um, using data uh, in various ways. Um, So Craig's a super interesting guy, um, ultra marathon runner, um, really experienced project manager, not from a data background, but now the CEO of an AI company. So um, we had a great chat um, and I think what him and the team are doing is a huge potential um, to kind of impact how projects are delivered, which is a pretty uh, pretty cool thing. Um, and also, he might finally get rid of post-it notes. For any of you guys that are in the world of project delivery or Agile or Scrum, I'm sure you've seen walls of post-it notes. Um, so we get into that on the podcast, which is fun. So yeah, enough of me blabbing on. I hope you enjoy. Uh, ladies and gents, please welcome Craig Mackay. We're live on the first remote podcast. Welcome, Craig Mackay. Thank you, Liam. Thank you for having me. No worries, thanks for coming on and thanks for uh, Shark Tower giving us some exposure on Twitter at the start of all this work from home malarkey as well. So we'll dive straight in. So we always kind of start on education on the podcast and I don't really know why, probably because it's the kind of start of people's career if you like. Depending on where people went to school, I'll bring up school first. So you went to Bonus Academy. Oh yes, the wonderful Bonus Academy. Um, first person ever on the podcast I went to Bonus Academy. Yeah, uh, hopefully I'm the, the most intelligent, famous person from Bonnes, but I doubt that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, but you know, Bonnes actually, amongst others, actually, I, I t- moved about quite a bit, so I had a potted uh, school. I was also over at uh, Tuch uh, in the Dunfermline. Oh, okay, yeah. Bonnes as well. Um, and then tried my hand, actually, which is not, not, not uh, written anywhere in my history of trying to be a graphic designer. Oh, really? Um, Gave up after a year. Didn't like doing non-practical stuff. So having to do all the art history and other stuff and life drawing around the fact that I just wanted to be a graphic designer. So I, I gave up that, went did a bit of public art for a bit of coaching public art and sculpture. Again, people asked me to do stuff that wasn't practically applicable in what I wanted to do. So I went and decided to get a job. Yeah, I think that was a, a bit of probably an insight to my career and the way I learned is uh, I was fairly decent uh, at school. But when it got to exam time, just didn't care at all. Uh, I did not see the point of exams. I did all the practical work. I could solve problems. Um, I could be creative. And then exams were just learning stuff from a book uh, for the sake of repeating it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably something in my career I learned. <laughs> it took a while to learn that, that my learning style. But my learning style was certainly uh, practical application, prototyping, and, and feeling is the way I learned. So uh, academia wasn't for me. Yeah, I was about to ask you, so you didn't go to university, and that's actually quite a nice theme to the podcast. Quite a few of the people I've had on haven't been to university, because I think we're still in a weird mindset, especially, I don't know about 
the further UK, but like Scotland, it seems like when you finish school, you're supposed to go to university. And that's kind of why I ended up at uni was because I wasn't hundred percent sure what to do. And obviously university is free here. So it makes it a lot easier, but yeah. you, you kind of almost have to go. And I think you hit the nail on the head there. And it's one of the things that my mum's a teacher or was a teacher. And I've never understood the education system that exams are all based on remembering a little chunk, a little chunk of a course, repeating it not in that person's words or referencing it correctly, and then you pass. Yeah, I always like to challenge, and that's something that we we adapt every day. Just you know, challenge previous learning, challenge previous studies, challenge previous research. And I did that from school. And teachers used to hate me, especially when I got to secondary school. The physics teacher hated me because I would challenge everything. Why? Prove it to me, because I've got another theory. Let me try and challenge it. Uh, that, didn't go, that doesn't go down very well in um, certainly secondary education. I'm sure it is much more in uh, higher education academia. So, yeah, the, the, and uh, to be fair, I've been proven right. You know, now I watch QI and stuff like that. I've never been proven right that actually oh, stuff in books wasn't correct. So <laughs> it was good to challenge. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, no, the last podcast I did with Luke, he was saying that a lot of the issues he has with computer science in particular is that by the time you do your four-year course, a lot of the things you've learned are out of date in computer science because it moves so quickly. And I suppose the same is true for data. But then by the time they've decided it's out of date, it takes them another two or three years to catch up and change the curriculum. And by that time, that update is out of date. So like, it's really it's really difficult to get a cutting-edge computer science course. Yeah. I think that's what we look for. You know, just a sort of segue to we look when we hire. We It's always a challenge to hire deep academia or a deep specialism and actually what we try to hire is obviously you want to see that but actually we also want to see the ability to practically apply new techniques new models new tools to continuously learn continuously learn is key uh, for anybody who wants to hire and whether that they've proven that through their studies in academia or they've proven it through a different route i think there's no correct route to get to to, to where you are today so i think as long as people have shown that they're continuously learning, they continuously challenge, adopt new frameworks, tools, and can practically apply them quickly, I think that's what we always look for when we recruit. So that's interesting. Yeah, we're going to chat about recruiting and building high-performing teams in a bit. But one of the things, I actually did a podcast for another company, but it's, it's never made it to air for various reasons. But I said that I didn't think there was a skill shortage when it came to hiring data people. I just thought there was a lack of knowledge around how to hire people. So like what you just said, if you can continuously learn and apply skills, then you can probably do it. So whether or not you've got a PhD in X, Y, or Z doesn't really make a difference. But yeah, no, we'll come back to, to recruiting in a bit more detail, but pretty much from your, well, yeah, the graphic design stuff after school, and then we'll, we'll draw a line under it. And then yeah. uh, from kind of late 90s to quite recently, really, you were involved in a huge kind of amount of project delivery across kind of business analysis, project management, program management, and kind of almost entirely financial services, right? Yeah, uh, predominantly um, until, until, until recently. Um, well, recently, <laughs> seven years. Um, but yeah, uh, so started off with financial services. I was very, very lucky. This was the first job I got after failing to become a graphic designer. I uh, was working for a, a now failed bank, Standard Life Bank, uh, which was from the same uh, people that set up Direct Line and went on to do intelligent finance, etc. So it was a challenger bank of those days when before we had the term challenger banks, but you know, yeah. days of high boom internet banking. Um, and it was great because it was a startup environment. I was the first, I think I was in the first 25 to join originally as you know a mortgage advisor, but within months you were running projects, you were 
getting to do writing scripts. Then all of a sudden I became involved in running the call center because I was sitting at my desk, just hacking away at stuff, trying to work out the systems work. People were planning things on paper. So I went and found out how do people plan queue systems and, and call centers. And I found out, you know, I could code some airline C into VBA and Excel and actually I could forecast all the call modeling and call handling and email inbound stuff. So, you know, by the time I was 20, I was in charge of call center planning. Um, and, that, and, that just, and that led into getting involved in projects. And I was really, again, just fortunate that I, I always say I'm self-taught, but I just sucked up loads of stuff. I'm not self-taught. I just sucked up everybody else's knowledge. Um, <laughs> You know, I think there's always people say they're self-taught, but I'm just lucky I was surrounded by people that give me freedom or opportunities. So we we adopted Lean Thinking with a company called Vanguard uh, we, dead early. Um, and this was purely based on pure lean and systems thinking. And it was great because systems thinking is about seeing the bigger picture and learning how to connect things. So all, I've, all I got to do was get involved in projects because I could see bigger pictures. I could connect different solutions and different processes. Um, and we were able to rapidly hack and you know try and get feedback loops and processes were changing whether it was front-end systems and new application processes so it was just a great grounding and it just led to most of my career has been you know following on from that um where i've just been able to go and take on big complex change projects whether it's efficiency programs uh whether it was you know underwriting engines credit risk engines etc most of them are just got it from a systems thinking point of view. How do you connect processes and information together, you know, to find the best solution? So I've always been a bit of a, a hacker. I'm just lucky I had the opportunity in early careers to be in almost a startup environment. And then I didn't think there was another way of working. So then when I moved on to the likes of RBS and everything else, I just didn't believe there was another way to work. I just thought, you know, you see a problem, you go at it from a systems thinking point of view, you try something, you learn, you try again, and you keep going. I soon found out in most most big corporates that's not how it works, and people don't need <laughs> to do that. Um, and there's a long process, and it's slow and hard. But I, mean, I kept fighting it for a number of years. Yeah, I was going to say that. So obviously, you worked in such different companies to what I suppose Shark Tower is, but you also must have learned loads about how to well, suppose how to run it, like you just said, looking at that systems thinking point of view. But also, you probably learned loads about how not to run projects when you worked for like the big banks. Oh yeah, absolutely. So you see, the most reasons that projects fail are because people aren't connected or they've got conflicting incentives. So yeah. I, I always use the example, I, this was later on actually when, when I joined Capgemini, but I was doing a big piece of program assurance work for a, a bank that I won't name. And I was reviewing this 45 million pound lean uh, efficiency program, multiple projects in it. And I couldn't find the benefits for about eight projects. I was speaking to business owners, they couldn't, nobody was putting their hands up saying, oh yeah, I own that change. When it comes out, I'm gonna accept the benefits from that and either reduce my costs or improve this thing. Um, and, but one project was improving the front end mortgage system for private banking. There was another project that was gonna close that down as a product because it wasn't profitable anymore. That was coming <laughs> six months later. So when I say to the program director, look, I know this business case may be written a year ago or so, but this this project is no longer viable. You've still got three months to run, but there's no point implementing it, training people. Actually, this saved three months worth of cost. And the response was, no, I don't get paid to stop projects. I get my, me and my team get our bonuses on, you know, I'm hitting the metrics. This is a green project. We've hit our milestones. We've managed costs. And I'd also have to send half the team home and their contractors and they rely on this and they're my friends. And that was the 
the straight answer to me when I said this project's going to have no value and it's a waste of money um, because you know they need they got their bonuses and their holidays from just hitting milestones and delivering regardless. So I think the biggest theory I've always seen in projects is projects you know just getting delivered regardless because yeah. people, you know, people don't have the right incentives and two everybody being conflicting inside an organisation. So we often worry about vendors and consultants and everybody all, all having competing. Um, priorities, but it's actually inside the organisations that's probably the worst um, because the internal change team don't have the same priorities as the business owner that needs to sell more or reduce costs. The people in the team don't get incentivized for doing themselves out of a job and yeah. or retraining to purpose themselves for another job. So it's all you know, they, you know, it's all conflicting and disingenuous. So yeah, change, change is difficult, um, but it's really really difficult when people aren't aligned um, and incentivized to do it together. Oh yeah, and I think. That's the thing when, so we only really recruit for kind of tech SMEs. I mean, there is exceptions to that. But one of the reasons that I've always really liked our business model is that we get to speak to like key decision makers who are all kind of, in the most part, joined up. And in the the cases where we have worked with bigger companies, I mean, there's a huge consultancy, again, that I wouldn't name, but we had people working there for many, many years on high day rate contracts on a government project that was never really going anywhere. Um, and, our, and our contractor knew that this is – at one point he said if any of this ever hit the news, he was like there would be a massive shitstorm. Um, he was like – and it's getting run so badly. And it, uh, by the end, his only contact was with the government. He didn't even have a contact within the consultancy apart from, yeah. the, guy, apart from the guy that signed his timesheet. And it was just like that, that was what really started highlighting to me early that these huge – consultancies and huge departments of whether it's finance government whatever like trying to deliver a project then that must be must be now and impossible it is it's difficult i think there there is there's advantages though you know, i ate, i got my education from there you know they had great resources there's people around you got great onboarding so early on in my career you got taught how to you know, manage people how to work in conflict how to Try and negotiate. So, because you had to negotiate really hard to make change happen or to make your case, you could easily give up. So, negotiation skills. So, you know, I, I did. I did a. I used to get frustrated, so I used to do side projects all the time. And we were doing this uh, project uh, in one of the retail banks that was looking at the cost efficiency of moving cash about. So it was quite quite complex using the security firms. There's they can only hold so much cash in vans um, at one time. And they have to go for routes, but they also charge per mileage and petrol and other stuff. So you basically want to try and optimize that. Um, and you also don't want to hold so much cash in a branch because that's high risk as well. So you've got to, and it was just a really bad project. It was mainly done about negotiation. So I went and modeled it again. I went and I didn't realize things such as data visualization existed or modeling at the time. So I just created myself a fancy little front end to Excel, modeled routes of traffic, optimal routes, modeled the cash in banks. Yeah, and how much you do, and I actually worked out I could say forty percent of what the security firm was charging if they changed their routes and their collection patterns. Trying to get that to anybody to actually out, out of the project to get it to any business stakeholders because you weren't allowed to go through a hierarchy and you weren't allowed to change the path that they already been defined. So that was hard, and you had to find ways of negotiating through and making it someone else's idea and subtly doing it. And it wasted a couple of months, but eventually you got it up there so someone would listen, and then the business owner. Who made the decision? Well, brilliant, amazing. Could you not brought this to me earlier? Wow, okay. <laughs> um, so I think you'd learn a lot about the art of negotiation, about 
personal motivations and incentivization. I think you have to understand that everybody comes to work for different reasons. Yeah. Um, so I think that and education-wise, plus they, are, they should be great groundings. And I think one of the challenges that I definitely got a great education that learned, you know, I learned how to practically apply the way I learn and the way I think. Um, and I think they should be a good groundbed for people coming out of academia. So well, actually, if you're going to come out of academia or your PhD in data science, computer science, whatever, these are the places you should go to learn some business acumen and some people skills and everything else, and then come into startups. <laughs> I think yeah. it seems to be the other way around at the moment. So yeah, no, it's it's for big corporates. Yeah, and I think they obviously have their place because they do such good work when it comes to training and onboarding and hiring and also a bit of structure as well because I think sometimes people people will suggest they like the madness of a startup, but I always worry if they ever actually worked in a startup when they say stuff like that because the, the, there's, there's no organization in most of them, um, especially in the early, early days. Like one day you could be doing a data podcast and the next day you could be doing financial forecasting like for the whole business like you don't really you don't really have a set structure whereas obviously in a big corporate you've got a relatively defined job and obviously people like you who want to go beyond that can do side projects um, and show a bit of initiative but you have like a at least you have a plan which I think some people really struggle with on when they first go to startups um, potentially believe me I probably didn't think it was interesting at the time but all my my data governance, my security, my corporate financing, my ITIL, all that stuff. When I came into a startup and actually, you know, that stuff becomes really applicable because you apply it really, really fast at the start. And that gives you structure and, you know, a bit of security and sustainability about a startup. There's no way I would have known that as a completely fresh startup founder with no yeah. experience around the table. So those things, yeah, have put me in great stead. Um, not that sexy stuff that startups want to talk about, but... Well, it's the stuff that I'm sure that the startups that don't understand it will learn in a very hard way if they don't understand like data governance and I don't know, just like having some sort of security in place or whatever it might be. Like some of the things that you might have seen go wrong or be like thought about before. And obviously, so what you did, have, I mean, a big chunk in the banks and then 2015, you ended up at Edinburgh Airport. Um, yeah. Which, interestingly, we spoke about this recently. I never really thought of the airport as. I don't know, somewhere that would have lots of kind of IT strategy, tech-type projects ongoing until I I read some of the work you've done there and um, a guy that I know works there, and he told me about some of it as well. Uh, it's actually really complex. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a huge ecosystem. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mini village, um, but you've got so many parties. So, you know, I can't remember the, the numbers in the airport, and obviously they're going through challenges just now. Um, but you know, I think there's maybe five, six thousand people involved in the airport. Yeah. But you know, very, very few of them. I think you know, less than ten percent of them actually work for the airport. So the airport creates the, the basically the infrastructure, the land environment for you know uh, retailers to come in, for uh, baggage handlers or uh, you know, airline handlers, and for aircraft to come. So yeah. Menzies, Swissport, everybody, they're all disparate organisations that want to bring in their own infrastructure as well whether that be you know, comms between ground control and, and aircraft that's coming, there's satellite systems, there's a huge amount of networks and security. But then there's also a passenger experience. Someone's going to try and bring that together. So, and you've got so many vendors. I can't, you know, when I went in there, I don't think I've ever, it was a baptism of fire, but to, you know, 
to try and get you know, grapple around all the IT vendors we had, both from you know, infrastructure, telecoms, um, data centers, applications, security halls, baggage halls. You know, even the security hall itself has four different, five different vendors in the security just to go through scanning. Well, just um, doing all different projects. Like they're one of them is responsible for like X, one of them is responsible for Y, and then they don't, probably don't really talk to each other. Yeah, and you have to kind of dovetail together a little bit, and that's again the part you have to be able to speak to, you know, McDonald Humphreys to deal with this part, uh, another vendor that deals with this part. Even in the, you know, all the scanners are different people, and then there's applications that try and connect them all together. But it kind of needs the team at airport to bring that together as well. Um, and then you try to do some innovative stuff in terms of the digital experience for customers, and also using data to see. It's a great data project. Um, yeah. You know, especially a place again, like airport that's got all this traffic coming in one road. You know, as soon as you have a problem on the road or a bridge is closed, um, yeah, any other environmental impacts, that impacts the whole ecosystem of the airport because people working in the airport can't get there. Customers yeah. queue, that then changes all the flight scheduling and other stuff goes on. So there's a huge data problem there and actually applying things like um, you know, cameras and image detection to look at crowd masses. Yeah. And before the security hall to understand the security hall is going to have a problem soon because there's a big mass of you know, people who just got off several buses that you didn't expect, uh, especially school trips, and they've now come through check-in. Actually, that crowd density stuff, you can model that and see the crowd flow and then try to see what's going to happen. And then looking at even the way that people respond to queues, it's, it's, brilliant, it's a brilliant project. Um, yeah, I remember speaking to them recently about it, and I always thought it's kind of my own fault because you get caught up in all these cool data projects. And like, I always thought Edinburgh Airport data, when I thought about it in terms of the numbers, I always thought that it would be like doing like loads of really cool flight predictions and trying to work out like ways to optimize like the runway scheduling and all that kind of like kind of directly involved with the flights when actually most of it is based on customer experience. So like the car park and the roads coming in and out and yeah, security queues and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, there's, there's so much data there. Yeah, no, it is. It's great. I think it's, it's to me. It was another great learning environment. Great team. Again, everybody trying stuff in the new time. The airport was expanding so fast. I'm putting in new systems and actually some cutting edge systems as part of the, the wider group. We were putting in brand new. Like I was up at four o'clock in the morning once scanning uh, baggage for a new baggage uh, system to try and load bags early and pre-hold them so that they could get people to check into the airport earlier. Um, and using new hand scanners to scan things, and you had to be involved. I mean, we were there putting the cables in place. We were also there working with the vendor because to get their software to work in our environment, and then you were there with the handlers to make them use the new tech and actually make sure it worked. It was great. Uh, I loved it. Must be a strange thing as well. So when you're delivering projects like for financial services, I mean, obviously it's still massively important and it'll go through rigorous testing. But when you're implementing something like a new way of doing baggage handling or check-in or security or passport control, like if you get that wrong when it's live, like that can be pretty catastrophic. Yeah, I think yes, yes, and no. Like one thing we didn't, I didn't wasn't responsible for planes landing. Uh, which is all right. So um, <laughs> traffic control, but yeah, there there is some. You can have huge effects, like when the the security system didn't work. You saw like you know the, the problems that can cause if the security system had any issues and the, the queues and the disruption it caused. But I think the the benefit is everything's really tangible. So every change you make, you see it. You walk through it every yeah. day. You walk through the airport every day to have your lunch. You see people's experience. 
you fly yourself. Every time we implement something, we were there touching it, watching it happen, sometimes doing it and working the scale. So that was what's completely different to financial services. I, 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 the reason I got out, you know, eventually I was working at Capgemini, and the reason I left was I, I couldn't remember actually seeing a project through to fruition and certainly yeah. not through the benefits realization. So I've been working on massive scale projects, you know, 75 million pound multi-channel sales experiences and automated credit underwriting. I can never see the output or sit you know, and tend to never see the benefit because it was always that far away to see measurable yeah. benefit. So that's why I left and sort of came back to sort of to try different things. And, it, you know, and Edinburgh Airport was a prime example of just seeing tangible change immediately. Yeah, I must admit, Edinburgh Airport is still the only airport in the entire world that I've been that I've never managed to get through the automatic passport control. Like, I, without without lying, every single time I touch on the scanner, and before it's even thought about it, it just comes up with a massive red cross and tells me to go to a human. Yeah. Every, every other airport in the world, I walk straight through. <laughs> yeah, that's probably just your face. <laughs> After all this will work, and it definitely isn't going to recognize me because I'm going to have long hair and a beard. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you managed to do loads in what was a relatively short amount of time at the airport, right? Like, it was only a couple of years, year and a half. Yeah. Um, yeah, but... I'd say I probably I probably did more in that time, and learned more and took on more expansive projects. You know, I wasn't really an infrastructure guy before then, and and any understand that you had to get involved in that. Actually, deal with physical on-site data centers and load rooms and other stuff as well. Which again, you would know, all, all that stuff. So you just had to learn again so fast and apply. But I think one of the key things is is the feedback loop. Like, yeah, you know, you're constantly got projects coming up, constantly got change. You have to respond quickly, learn fast, and then you are playing back business cases to the capital committee all the time. And they're making the they're rigorous and they're testing you all the time, but the feedback's really quick. Yeah. Uh, there's not there wasn't a huge amount of hierarchy. Uh, so it was fairly open. You 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 were told and it was a rubbish answer you were given, you were getting told and it was a good answer. Um, and then when you applied projects, you were there seeing it. And, and I think feedback loops of anything you do are really, really important. If you don't get quick feedback loops, you can just be pissing in the wind yeah. or you can get demotivated because you're just working and you, you're not getting anything back. Um, and whether that's testing a model or testing an idea or doing anything. So I think, yeah, it was a it was a good environment for really, really f- focused growth. Um, everybody, you know, pulling together on that. And then you, know, you got really, really fast feedback loops from that. No, good. Um, and yeah, every time I've spoken to you about it, it's always been really positive. So obviously this is a data podcast. Admittedly, you have talked, or we have talked about data with some of the credit risk stuff, some of the models you built to optimize things. But from more of a focused point of view, 2016, you ended up joining Medano. And I can't remember if this is right, but they're, they were essentially a data consultancy in London, right? And yeah. did, you, did you set up Edinburgh? I was the first Scottish hire. Um, yeah. yeah, and my, my original, original task was to come and actually grow the practice uh, into Scotland. Yeah. And that was more from the data consultancy delivery. But one of the, the main reasons I joined Medano was for Shatter. So the, the, their vision, Medano's vision, while being a data consultancy, um, the their vision was always to build autonomous projects. So their, their, their vision was to try and solve project delivery problem. The bit that we talked about before, hey, everybody's incentivized wrong. It's not very transparent. You know, yeah. People start off to do good things, but when we get to deliver, do we still measure that we're delivering the right thing? And do we even know how we're delivering it? Um, so that's that's what their, their their vision always was. But they were doing it while delivering uh, tangible change to clients as well and 
using that platform and their solutions to do it. So I, I, you know, I joined because they wanted to solve the problem that I'd seen for nearly 20 years um, yeah. of my life. And then I had actually tried to solve myself, as you ever do, again, being a bit of a hacker, I kept trying to create solutions uh, without any engineering expertise or data expertise behind me. So it actually just rekindled stuff that had been you know, burning for me uh, to do for years. Uh, so management. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was it was an easy pivot because it was just something. Uh, I think as Ed said, uh, he was the CEO when he hired me that I'd probably been working on Shatter as long as he'd been working on it, if not longer, because I'd been trying to hack this problem, be trying to solve it. So it just came naturally. And then yeah, so originally there, and then very quickly you know, pivoted to focusing on sort of the, the sort of actually how I took over the originally the proposition of how do we extend Shark Tower, not just used by our consultants, but also used by our clients. Yeah. Um, and then always that evolved quite quickly on oh, how do we actually make a product? Because it was a, a consultant toolkit that had yeah. a bit of handcrafting. It had a, you know, it was co-founder coded, so very quickly pivoted to taking over the product aspect of, of Shark Tower and development all that, which led to us open the R&D uh, function in both data science and software engineering in Edinburgh in October 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that was, that was the, the route into Medano. And I remember, I think I'm right in saying this, but when I was speaking to Ami at one point, he mentioned that you guys were competing with the Capgeminis, the EYs, like the big traditional consultancies, but one of the ways you could get ahead of them was you kind of left them with Shark Tower. Was that part of your job to kind of be able to leave the product behind? Yeah, well, that was what, what, what I wanted to ask is to make sure the product you know, had a life beyond us being there. I think there was two ways I think that Medano competed very well with this before. I think it goes back to, it goes a bit back to the being able to rapidly prototype stuff and deliver fast. So Medano were purely focused on delivering outcomes and value, but making sure it was the right thing to do and not having the bureaucracy of the big four and not having targets and, and utilization allowed them to go to market differently and say, right, actually, we're going to bring the same expertise that worked at IBM and EY previously, but we're going to do it purely based on making sure we're delivering the right thing. And we're going to show you that by actually showing you all the data of how we deliver, and then also telling you when the thing we're delivering shouldn't continue and to stop yeah. and actually being brave in that. So I think you know, that was that was one part, and then also Shatter was a part of that. So Shatter was a part of, well, let me show you the delivery data and let's make it completely transparent. There's no hierarchy of reporting. There's no PowerPoint deck that's going to show you the, the message we want to give you. We're going to make the data transparent between us, vendors, and yourselves so that you know, everybody knows if we're doing a good job or not. Um, and also we can always focus it on the business value and outcome we come. So I think that's one of the ways that, uh, they clearly differentiated and and that naturally led to Shutter being sort of pulled by McDonald's clients because they go, well, that's great. Yeah. But can I use it over here with this change that I'm doing with you know another uh, consultancy or we're doing ourselves? Uh, and that natural pull was was obviously a great thing to have. And yeah. that was my job was to try and build on that and make the product more consumable by end users without the consultancy involved. Was that almost like a little, or maybe not even little, but? Uh a real life proof of concept that some startups build like an MVP yeah. uh, but they're never really well they're not yeah. really sure um, whereas you were sure because you were already doing it just through yeah. that I think so the Medano was founded uh, by the co-founders in November uh, 
well, I have to remember my dates. 2014 was it? Um, 2000, yeah. And then by the following March, they were using Shakhtar live um, yeah. on a major implementation uh, on, on the first beta. And so you know, they didn't wait around to show data. And a lot of that was data analytics, data storytelling. But yeah, then it was just, you know, to get to this point, we've had five years of incubation and proving and live testing um, yeah. of the product. It's never been built in concept. It's always, everything we've built has always been used live uh, on first release. That must be a massive help, yeah. And then obviously, the kind of relatively big news of a couple of months ago, Medano were acquired by Accenture yep. um, to be part of their, is it applied intelligence? Is that right? Yeah, the FS Applied Intelligence, yes. Yeah, so, uh, which is pretty major news for them. But since we're talking to you, uh, that also meant that Shark Tower ended up spinning out as its own product with you at the helm, which is exciting. Yeah, so the what was the Chief Product Officer uh, role just obviously uh, graduated up to uh, Chief Executive uh, role. Um, I, you know, And it's a continuation of the work we're doing. We're, we're very lucky that we had a by this point a mature product, mature team, and we've been through all the pains as well. So I'm, I'm very privileged that it's, it's my first CEO role, and we're we're a startup, but we're not really. You know, hopefully, we're, yeah. we're scale up. But yeah, you know, privileged to have you know five years of testing, a mature team, but also we made all the mistakes. So as I took over engineering, took over the product team, I made all the mistakes of hiring at the wrong levels, hiring too fast, having product roadmaps that were all over the place, and not you know being engineering led and not product led and you know, we've we've been through those pains uh, yeah and i do another talk about all the uh, mistakes i've made and learnings i've had over the period of time um, <laughs> but we also were able to rebuild old product as well so even in that you know we got a lot of support from the dino films we built, rebuilt the whole product in 2018 from the ground up yeah and then last year was again about iterating in and making it more consumer grade experience and product led and really making sure that some of the stuff that we sold was coming through the front end in terms of data science. So yeah, it, and we got to the point where naturally the two businesses were, you know, we were a business inside a business. Yeah. And the two businesses were expanding and needed to go and I needed to take Shark Tower out to get to more users, to more companies, to get to more data. And, you know, it was now a point where Shark Tower was more applicable than just through the sort of consulting distribution channel we had before. So yeah, I would really... Great timing, both from Medano in terms of the essential acquisition and, and being part of FS Applied Intelligence, but it was absolutely the right time for us to, to spin out anyway. Yeah. And, and a great platform for us to, to kick on. So I have two questions to follow on from that. What is your kind of elevator pitch when you're talking about Shark Tower to people who have no idea what it is? Uh, so, yeah, it's actually quite, it's probably fun to explain what Shark Tower is first and then come on. The yeah, yeah so go for it. People go, why the hell the name Shark Tower? So, I only figured this out yesterday, by the way, which is a <laughs> Yeah, for, for, for anybody that might have been on a beach in Australia, and so a shark tower is the thing that people sit on high up so they can try and spot they, you know, spot ripples or shadows in, in the in the ocean. The sharks might be approaching. Uh, I believe now it's all done by drones and other stuff, but, uh, you know, in the day. So we just try to do the exact same for projects. We just try to spot dangers on the horizon and then navigate people around that. So... What we're trying to do, ultimately, we're applying data analytics, data storytelling, visualization, and then apply the ML to try and find insights that people don't know about their delivery, point humans in that direction, and then navigate them around those issues. Um, so simply spot problems and try and mitigate them. I like that. And it makes so much more sense now as well. Um, I, I always enjoyed the name Shark Tower and like your email sigs and all that, but I didn't make the 
correlation that it was actually related. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it lets us to play with the brand and do some fun stuff, but yeah, it did have a reason. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Well, it's when I spoke to uh, Jewel Watts about why she called it Afini. She just said she Googled the cheapest domain name. <laughs> um, and it was something to do with uh, like our daughter's toy or something like that. And then Richard at Peak got drunk and spent three grand on a domain or something along the yeah, way. Yeah, so that. I don't know. Um, so like people, the name of a company's actually always got an interesting story behind it. But yeah, yours also relates to what you do. So yeah, well, how do you tell people that they need that if they maybe don't know they do? I think there's a couple of things. I think people know they need it because they spend a lot of time trying to do it manually. So I think this is where then you try and solve it as a data problem. So if we sold ourselves as a project management software, people go, I don't need that because I've got project management software. I've actually got lots of it. And I've actually got lots of ways of managing projects. I've got frameworks, methodologies, I've got PMOs, I've got governance control systems. So we are a data product. We have to, you know, ultimately we are a software product as well. We have to have the features and all the stuff to do your job, but we're a data product. And people spend all the time trying to do it. You know that? You know, the easiest way for me to sell it is I used to do program assurance. I used to get paid or clients used to pay my company, you know, a hundred pounds, £1,500 a thousand pounds to fifteen hundred pounds a day for me to come and do assurance to try and say, is the project working? Do we believe the stuff that we're getting reported? Are we on track or we're off track? How do we recover? Are we going to get the benefits? And I think I remember once I did program assurance, it took me three months to try and really get under there for this major program that had about 250 people working on it. We had the IT team reporting completely separate to the business change team. You had the vendor reporting completely separate. Nobody had looked at the business case in a year and a half. And it, I had to do all this work to do assurance. And yeah. by the time I came up with an answer, we'd already spent three months burning. So people are doing that every day. They're, they're, they're using humans to try and solve the problem. And then they have huge PMO functions that are every day. They're, all their job is to try and collect data, then regurgitate data, and then push data up to get people to make decisions. But by the time they do that, it's taken two weeks, four weeks sometimes to collect the data. Yeah. The data was never trustworthy to start with because it was always slightly biased or subjective because uh, it's reported by humans who are a bit resident to report it correctly or they don't see what's happening. And then it took a huge amount of manual effort to get up there. And then we're trying to make decisions. So it's not a hard sell. When I sit down and explain what goes on and what goes on in organizations, everybody goes, oh yeah. Yep, yep. I spend about 30, 40% of my project management costs, my consultancy costs or time doing manual reporting. And that manual reporting is collecting data, copying it, pasting it, sending it up the way. And then I ask senior stakeholders to try and make a decision on it. And yeah. Which is clearly can't because the data is not correct. It's out of date. It's not timely. All the good things that data should be, you know, it's not. Uh, so it's not a hard sell. Yeah, and people are frustrated by that. They know the waste. They see the the continual failure in, in project delivery. The stats are there, and every single you know analysis you want to see, every single research analyst report every year shows it doesn't get any better. So we need to come from it from a different perspective. And I think that's what we tried to sell. It's not project management software. And if I could drop the term project management, I would, because uh, ultimately we are business decision making. Yeah, tool. That's what we're trying to help people make better decisions on where they invest the money. Should they keep investing their money or their effort or their resource or their time? So what we're trying to sell is, you know, actually be data-driven. How can we make, change your data culture? How can we make you data-driven in the way that you measure change and the way that you make decisions on where to invest in change? And you've got the kind of data viz behind it as well. Like I think a lot of things maybe miss 
Yeah, I think a lot. So some of it we, we can talk a little bit about. We talk about AI driven project management, and AI is a big word, right? Um, so <laughs> you know what is what is AI? But I think first of all, it's about data techniques. So the first thing is we have to tell data stories. So you know, for us, that is there's a, there's a couple of things with data visualization, data storytelling for me is. It's going to be timely and understandable, right? So whether that is simple analytics on trends, or you know, or simple throughput, or, or velocity of projects or anything like that, um, or whether it's complex, you know, output from machine learning models, it's going to be explainable, and then it's going to be usable. And to be usable, it has to be timely. Um, so that that's one thing we need to get data to the right people in ways they understand, ways that tell stories, so that they can then say, okay, I should look at this. This is trying to tell me some sort of insight. And it's telling me I should potentially look over there or do this action, and I can do that now, and I can see feedback of my action has had effect. Um, so we, we, we try to do a lot of that. So I think before you go down AI or machine learning, first thing is data visualization, data storytelling. And we'll, I'll give you an example. We do something really simple. We do a Sankey diagram. So a Sankey diagram showing the handoff of work. So where work was created, who created the work, whether it's a, a task, story, whatever, in a project who then they assigned it to, and then you can go see how many people got involved and who finished the work. And this great visualization shows you some really strange behaviors in teams, so, or not optimal behaviors, not maybe not strange, but not optimal. Yeah. So, you know, we show it, you know, the use case we quite often talk about, it shows the senior people in the team, and I'm often the scrum master or the product manager or the project manager, is actually assigning all the major work to themselves. And actually, all the complex work. And then you see other people who create a lot of work. And we use this use case where we see this guy, which we, we knew the case very well, that he was creating a lot of work and assigning it to people, but he was an analyst. He should be a doer. Yeah. And what, what you see is he was what we call a, a lifter and shifter or a floater. Yeah. One of these people in organizations that always got their hand up, buys everyone coffee, smells a lot, facilitates every <laughs> workshop. But actually this very simple diagram could show he was actually not doing his primary role. Yeah. When you show that in a visualization, totally transparently, what we weren't doing was saying what was good or bad. We just showed it. And then all of a sudden, the teams and the squads, they self-regulate and they, they normalize and they go, oh, wait a minute. So all of a sudden, the pattern changes overnight. Yeah. You saw that the senior staff weren't delegating enough work and giving people opportunity. They started delegating more work. You saw those floating shifters went, oh, shit, I better actually start doing more work and yeah. <laughs> get my task rate up. Um, and that wasn't by control. That was just by trans transparency of data and showing sure, no, yeah. um, So there's, there's really interesting things. We we spend a lot of time looking at the behavioral economics yeah. and the behavioral change of this because we want to see positive stuff. Right? We don't want people hitting people with a stick. Um, so that's a good example of you know, how can we make data more visual, more transparent, and then allow people to solve problems around it um, and certainly around the work. Yeah, okay. So I think I've only got three more points to go over. One of them is non-work, two of them are work. We've spoken about this before, but will Shark Tower get rid of post-it notes forever in project management? Yeah, so I'm glad you said post-it notes not project managers, because most people say, well, they get rid of project managers. Because <laughs> we talk about autonomous project and artificial intelligence, and uh, one thing is we certainly won't get rid of project managers. Um, no. So I'll just touch on that point, is we believe in augmented intelligence. So our, our machine learning models are giving people insights. And, yeah. and, the, and we know they're not the most absolute robust answers because the data sets have not been the best to start with. Yeah. But that, that's okay. I think if you know that 
the problem you're trying to solve doesn't require level accuracy, it requires insights and, and direction, yeah. then it's okay to start showing output. I think we're not a safety system, right? We're not landing planes. So I don't need machine learning models to be absolute, but I need them to be better than human insight and point people in the right direction. So we, we really think about augmented intelligence that guides project managers where to look. Uh, and that can be things like team sentiment, for example. Uh, you know, Especially now, now that we're all dispersed. So yeah. when we were all sitting in one office, I knew my team. I knew who needed a coffee. I knew, I knew who looked stressed. So I had that intimacy and intelligence yeah. that I could go and buy people a coffee or I could give someone a kick up their arse if I needed to. But as ever, you can't do that easily at scale and certainly not with dispersed teams. So our, our sentiment models measuring sentiment teams the way they write work, how ambiguous it is, you know, the tone of it, we're doing it all the time to show the project managers, look, something's happening. Go look in that area that around that piece of work, the sentiment seems to be falling. It's probably because the work's ambiguous or people are overloaded. So that's how we're hopefully going to just augment project managers. Yeah, okay. To, to do that, what we do need to do is replace post-it notes and white whiteboards. You know, it's just wasted data, right? It's just ridiculous. Like, and you know, it's been going on for years. I, I I remember I used to be doing digital transformations, massive digital transformations, and I'd have a war room that was brown paper and project plans mapped out and post-it notes. And this was supposed to be a you know, fifty million pound digital transformation of a bank, and I'm running in post-it notes, which were only use, useful if it was in headquarters because no one else could see them. Yeah, uh, you have to be in that room looking at those post-it notes, um, or you spent a lot of time copying them into lots of different sources. But they were all disparate as well. Um, so yes, I think we have to get rid of post-it notes. Hopefully, people, you know, more so than now, right? Let's not. I don't, you don't want to really talk about this situation too much and pray on it. But you know, I think the imperative or the, the acute awareness of we we can't still use traditional ways of working. You know, we can't be relying on post-it notes and whiteboards. Because actually, our teams should be more remote. And certainly now we have to be remote, but we should have the ability to work flexibly and remotely. And to do that, you need to digitize your stuff. But more so, you need to learn from it. If it's stuck on paper somewhere or a disparate source and post notes, you're not learning at all. And that's the problem with project. projects aren't a learning system. It, 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 as much as even the big four will tell you, buy me, we've done this thing 100, 100 times before. We've done we've done ERP implementations or Salesforce implementations a thousand times before by us. They always start from scratch, and they start from human muscle memory. They don't start from data. Uh, so yeah, we need to replace post-it notes, whiteboards. We need to capture data uh, and learn from it. But I think also it, having it again captured digitally it makes it transparent. And I think when you have transparency, then you get shared accountability. Yeah. I think that's important as well in certain project delivery, but also. If you want data quality to be better, everybody has to care about the data. And people can't care about the data if they can't see it. So again, yeah. you need to get off those notes. I've never you're in much more privileged position than I am because I've never worked in anywhere that uses post it notes, but you can't have that much useful information written on a post it. And then where it, where it is in your office, I think you told me this story that you went into somewhere that had like an entire like office wall of post notes. Yeah. So like unless you've got one of those sliding library ladders, like you're not gonna you can't even yeah. see it. Yeah, there was a there was a recent post that actually I yeah, I wouldn't name the company or the person. Uh, I have used it in a few talks, uh, it was just in January that this manufacturing company they went and they've got plants all over Europe and they went and did a you know, a whole weeks of planning of work breakdown for the upcoming projects and they did it in the hallway. And they just got this picture of this hallway with post-it notes going all the way up and there's a big ladder at the end. And I'm like, that's brilliant when you're in the hallway, but it's useless after that. 
Uh, but it's also insane. And you're right. What happens with with that is you're constraining the information people can put in because you've only got a certain point in time. So again, it becomes a bit too high level and abstract. Yeah, there's there's nothing smart about posts. Collaboration is important. Being able to do stuff, whiteboard stuff, and do it uh, very quickly is important. But there's nothing smart about keeping it there for more than 30 minutes of the, the workshop lasting. Yeah. No, I like that. Uh, and then just lastly on, on work stuff. So <clears throat> you've uh, obviously recruited and built a lot of teams. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you've recruited and built a lot of kind of high-performing teams. Do you have any tips for anyone else listening to the podcast? Like, how do you, how do you do that? As well, so I've certainly learned how not to do it. I think it, there, there's a the balance. You've got to give purpose. High-performing teams need to have purpose, right? And I think everybody has to have shared incentives. It's easy. I I know in my career I've been the most depressed when I've struggled to have purpose and, and work. I When I left Stanley Bank, which was a great environment, my first experience is I went and got a permanent job at another bank. I won't mention them, but they just hired like 250 uh, change analysts, project analysts to go into their group change function, right? And we just all sat in this big HQ. And I got through my work in like a day. And I was just bored, so I was trying to find new work. And I was eventually told to slow down because I was making other people look bad. Uh, and I was encouraged to go to this on-site place they had to go and just relax. I'm like, this is insane. I want to do stuff. So I think people need purpose and pace uh, to be high-performing. Right? That, so you need to be able to have autonomy. I think people are going to be careful with like Autonomy is a team thing. I've also seen people be frustrated coming in. Well, you hired me as a as this role, data science and like, oh, I want to have autonomy. I want to do whatever I want. I want to go and think deeply about this one subject. Like, no, like, autonomy comes as a as a team, as a collective. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you also have to have purpose with pace. And to me, that is a practical application. So I go back to I'm a big thing for feedback loops. So whether you're, and I think this is probably one of the biggest learnings for the data science profession as it moves now to become more industrialized and more you know more um, routine and expected mm-hmm. organizations um, and move away from academia yeah it, we, you know, it has to have feedback loops so you have to be able to play to be high performing you have to be able to share your output and get feedback immediately and, and iterate and change it um, I think that's how you have high performing high performing teams um, the other part is you've got to have, and I think we've, as we were talking earlier on just before we started about adapting to the current climate and doing yeah. podcasts remotely. I think the other part is you've got to have a connection. To be a high-performing team, you've got to care for each other. And I think is it's too easy to try and get focused on, we've got a big thing to deliver. We've got a mission to deliver. We've got a vision. Let's just build stuff and then keep going or let's keep doing R&D. And in the old days when we all came through, certain structures and organizations or certain graduate programs or anything else or going to university, you learn to care for people because you were brought up together. Obviously, there's a lot of churn in startups and scale-ups and fast-paced, but you do need to make sure that you spend enough time making sure people do connect, socialize, and, and care because you know if you care for your colleague, you're going to perform highly for them and you're going to look after their back. Yeah. Uh, so it can't just be about the output. And this has been fun times to try and find new ways to keep connected and find new... Um, virtual online ways to, to make sure that people still care for each other, look out for each other, um, which has been fun over the last few weeks as we've pivoted to full remotes. So. Yeah, I need to pick your brains on some of that. We're, uh, we've start, we've had a few ideas, but we're running out. 
we did host a virtual pub quiz with my wife's family on Saturday, which was uh, which was a lot of fun actually. Yeah, I did one on Friday with the family, um, and then oh, doing one. Cream, you were fully fully dressed for it. Yeah, yeah, you've got to look at the quiz master. You've got to make an effort. <laughs> and then just lastly then, so we've talked about all the work stuff, and I totally agree with everything about high-performance teams. I think that makes a lot of sense. I imagine you've won in competitive situations when hiring for like the likes of Medano and Shark Tower by just being quicker and more decisive than the kind of big four and those kind of big companies because you've got those feedback loops in place even when you're hiring. Yeah, that's it. I think we're certainly decisive. I actually think we probably take longer in the process than I've ever been through my career. But I think what we've been, I think what we are is we're we're very transparent and quick feedback through the process. But we've yeah. always taken care to make multi-stage processes um, because people are coming into a different environment. You really want to make sure that, again, on paper, even in technical tests, they can look excellent. But actually, are they going to have that continuous learning? Are they going to be able to adapt? But also, are they going to fit in the team? Because you're a small team, right? So everybody's going to fit. So as you scale, as you grow and scale the businesses, I think we spend a lot of rigor in the recruitment process, but we're very quick in the feedback. And I think anybody yeah. that's been through the process feels like it's been a shared experience where I think the opposite of that is, yes, the process might be shorter or the same as the time, but actually you get very little feedback in it. And it yeah. feels like you're just going through a system and it's a bit dead and you you know, you've, you feel like it's just a numbers game or it's a criteria and set out yeah um so i think that, that, that's again i wouldn't say we were certainly faster we're certainly decisive but we do take as much care if not more but i think it's about again it's about the transparency and feedback during that yeah i think taking the care is the biggest part for recruiting in a startup i think the thing that we notice the most is you you almost even when we're recruiting for people you kind of get to hear the decision makers like thoughts out loud almost like they're telling you the whole way through like this is what we're thinking this is why we're doing it we're maybe going to tweak the next stage because of xyz where you're right if you're recruiting for a big four like normally we'll just fire a profile into a web portal somewhere and eventually we'll get an email asking for a telephone interview we'll, we won't get feedback the feedback will be there onto the next round or they're not yeah i think we missed out on yeah, I think it's important to show your credentials in the recruitment process and um, all things. So, you we had a data company, right? And you know, so when people come through the process, I ask them what, what they need to see about us and mm-hmm. what data. And that has different roles, and, and whether it's data science and recently hired or want to see some of the problems we've solved, some of the data sets we've got in the process. Uh, when I was looking at, you know, chief growth officers, they really want to see our metrics. They want to see the target market we're going to, and we'll sit and we'll show them everything. Yeah. That we show to the board of investors because it's really important to be that transparent and data-led in everything we do. Um, and I think, again, that, and that's also adjusting to what the applicant wants because, again, we, we, we are doing a sales job for ourselves. So yeah. you've got to respond to the applicant's questions and what they want from the process as well. Yeah, Edinburgh's a tough market as well. There's a lot going on, so it makes sense. And my last thing was just from your LinkedIn, which I, I never knew, but uh, you were the chairman of the Scottish Ultra Marathon Series for a number of years. Does that mean you did them? I did them. You wouldn't believe it uh, oh. with this, this, this belly just now. But So what's um, an ultra marathon? Uh, anything, technically anything over a marathon, uh, but in the ultra marathon, we like to set the limit at 50k, uh, so 33 miles, oh. anything up, but then it can go up to crazy. Um, so... You get multi-day events, you get 24-hour events. Um, the longest I've done is a 110-mile event. Um, oh, how long did that take? 
I can't remember. It's, it's, you don't worry about time, and it's about the journey. It's just about mental, it's just mental toughness. Yeah, I can say that because I'm not fast. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, used to, I used to do actually I used to do about a dozen a year. Jesus! But this last couple of periods, I've just uh, yeah, I'm not been able to maintain it, so I need to get back on. It's uh, uh, no, it's not. So there's a guy that I listen to on. Uh, he's been on Joe Rogan's podcast a few times, but he does like the 200 milers and like stuff like that. Um, yeah. Some of it just sounds horrendous. Yeah, I think to be fair, it's, uh, I always say that a marathon's the hardest thing I've ever done. You know, I'm trying to do a fast marathon was really, really awful. Yeah. I hate it. I hate every minute of it. Where there's ultra marathons, it's all about communities. They always have the mental benefits of it. You know, yeah, are, are great. And you get to walk up hills and run down the other side. So yeah, it's a good it's different terrains, isn't it? Like it's not just like a flat road for 100. X yeah. mile. That would be there, pretty comfortable. There is some of those, uh, but most of them are, are nice terrains, also. And if you really want, you can have a beer while you're going. Uh, I, I think one of my last ones, I stopped halfway and had a soup and a pint. Uh, oh, you're <laughs> And then continued on. So that's not a bad race if you can do that. That's not bad. All right. Well, that's a good place to end. Soup and a pint on a marathon. Where, uh, where can everyone find Shark Tower or even you on social media? Yeah. So uh, if you go to sharktower.com, uh, you'll see uh, some stuff and actually we should have a refreshed site uh, talking a little bit more about actually you know, what we're doing in, in, in applied intelligence in, uh, in that space so hopefully that'll be out live tomorrow actually a new site so check it out right. and then yeah we also find us on LinkedIn I'm easy to find on Twitter or LinkedIn but go and see the company uh, as opposed to me uh, if you follow <laughs> me on Twitter I'll just talk about Lego at the moment because that's how I'm keeping myself yeah, sane I'm loving that yeah, so I just looked it up. It's Shark Tower app on Twitter and then just at Craig C. McKay on Twitter as well if you want to see some Lego holding some wires. <laughs> yep, that's, uh, that's what motivates me every morning is my little Lego helper. I like it. All right, cool. Well, thanks very much for coming on. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Liam. I uh, appreciate it and uh, well done for keeping this going. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Cheers, mate. That was a fun chat, uh, not bad for the first remote podcast, um, it seemed to go pretty well. I've known Craig for a while, um, I've been keen to get him on the podcast for ages, um, basically since uh, I-, I thought of the idea of it, so glad we finally got it done, even in these uh, testing circumstances. I hope you enjoyed the chat, um, it was really interesting to see what he learned in big companies compared to startups, how that changes kind of the hiring and what he thinks makes up a high-performing team. Uh, we covered loads uh, in the space of an hour, so I hope you enjoyed please keep listening any suggestions for guests or topics just fire them over um, you'll get me at liam underscore cathcart on twitter until next time folks bye